Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, before we get started with today's program on the International War of Drugs, I uh, just wanted to make a couple quick announcements. First of all, I wanted to uh, shamelessly plug the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, this is a publication that we release every four years. It provides a, a really good overview from a free market libertarian perspective on uh, virtually every issue you tackle here on Capitol Hill, ranging from uh, today's subject, the war on drugs, to, uh, to fiscal policy like Social Security, entitlements, free trade, uh, you name it, and it's in the handbook for policymakers. We do provide this publication free of charge to all uh, Capitol Hill staff. So if you need a copy, by all means let me know, or, or Kurt Couchman over there uh, from the Cato staff will be happy to get you one. Uh, it is also available on uh, our website, cato.org, in its entirety. You can actually download the PDFs section by section. Uh, so if you want to find it that way, by all, by all means, uh, feel free. Um, also on our website, I should mention, will be a, uh, the video from today's event, if you go to the archived events section. So if you uh, happen to miss something that one of our speakers said or just want to go back to refresh your memory, uh, visit our website and you should be able to check it out there. Uh, with that, I'll go ahead and introduce our, our first speaker for today. Uh, Ian Vasquez is the director of Cato's uh, Center, for Global I'm sorry, Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Uh, prior to joining Cato back in 1992, uh, he worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Ian received his bachelor's degree from Northwestern University, also uh, holds a master's degree from the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. Ian? Good afternoon. Yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, the new drug czar, uh, Karolikowski, announced that he wanted to change the metaphor of the war on drugs to use some other metaphor, which I think is a welcome change because, of course, the war on drugs is uh, not a war on drugs but a war on people, whether uh, they're Bolivian farmers or American consumers. But, of course, what is needed is more than just a rhetorical change in this uh, decades-long drug war. Uh, what is needed is to rethink the whole approach and go beyond uh, mere changes that affect consumers in the, the United States and rethink the policies that also affect uh, production and supply. And in the war on drugs, uh, the two components, reducing uh, drug consumption in the United States, the domestic component, and the international uh, component, uh, both uh, of those issues have to be addressed. Today I'm going to uh, talk just about the uh, war on drugs in Latin America, and my colleague Ted Carpenter will talk about the war on drugs elsewhere and probably say a few words about the United States. A major reason why <clears throat> the issue of the drug war has uh, come up is because of the dramatic increase in violence in Mexico. Last year alone, 6,000 people were killed in drug-related violence, and... Uh, some of that violence, a lot of that violence, was particularly gruesome, including decapitations, uh, grenades thrown into crowds of uh, civilians. Uh, drug traffickers are now posting the names of law enforcement officials in public who they plan to assassinate, and then uh, they go ahead and do it. As this type of lawlessness uh, spreads and even spills over into the United States, it is no longer possible for uh, the drug war in Latin America or elsewhere to be dealt with as an abstract concept. It has become very much a security issue, all the more so if uh, this threatens to uh, create instability 
in Mexico. In fact, the United States has been uh, promoting the war on drugs throughout Latin America f since at least the time of uh, Ronald Reagan. So we have a record of some 30 or so years of, by which to judge the drug war. At the same time, the United States has uh, had a policy of promoting democracy and free markets in the region. Sometimes I have agreed with those policies, as in the cases of free trade agreements, which I support. Sometimes I haven't, as in the case of the U.S. involvement in Central America's uh, civil wars. Nevertheless, the goals, that is, to be supportive of the spread of uh, democracy and, and free markets, I think uh, are worthwhile. And unfortunately, the drug war works at cross-purposes uh, with uh, those goals of the spread of democracy and markets and is actually undermining the very institutions of civil society that the U.S. purports to support. And it does so uh, principally because of the corruption and the violence uh, that is spread and also the distortions in the economies that result not from uh, drug trafficking, but that result from prohibition. And they do so precisely because of the black market premiums that prohibition creates and all of the perverse incentives uh, that that uh, creates. Latin America is very much an example of what uh, the late Nobel laureate Milton Friedman uh, said when he, uh, <coughs> uh, when he mentioned, as a nation, we have been destroying foreign countries because we cannot enforce our own laws. This is exactly what is happening uh, with the drug war in the region. And I think that that is a shame, particularly because the last couple of decades have been a couple of decades in Latin America where de both democratization and, and uh, liberalization in the economic sphere uh, has been occurring, or at least countries have been struggling uh, to achieve those goals. And it's particularly worrisome in recent years now that there is this ideological struggle going on in the region between those who favor various forms of democratic uh, capitalism and those who favor various forms of populism. And you can bet that the populists are taking full advantage of the effects of the war on drugs to promote their own agenda. Every aspect of the drug war in the region, interdiction, uh, uh, eradic eradication, crop substitution has been a failure. Uh, interdiction uh, has failed because you end up only interdicting a certain percentage of, of uh, drugs that uh, are produced. Eradication fails because it's basically a policy that goes after the most low-cost part of uh, the drug trade. So that even if efforts uh, uh, in the drug war are successful, or twice as successful, uh, according to the drug uh, warrior's own uh, criteria, that will have very little or no effect on the final price of drugs in the United States or even the flow of drugs. And this is because of several reasons. One of them is uh, precisely because of the structure of the drug trade. Uh, as an example, uh, smuggling costs and other production costs of cocaine uh, make up maybe 10 to 13 percent of the final price of cocaine in the United States. Uh, uh, it's just a fact that the price of drugs, illegal drugs, 
goes up tremendously only after they come into the United States, only after they cross the border, so that uh, so that drug uh, warriors, drug traffickers, always have a tremendous incentive to bring uh, to bring that drug into the United States, and increasing some of the supply side costs really are uh, is a is a, a minimal has a minimal effect on the drug trafficking. Uh, it's just another cost of doing business for drug traffickers. Traffickers also uh, respond in dynamic ways to what they've already become accustomed to in, in terms of seizures and interdiction. They stockpile drugs uh, in case, in t- for times when uh, there have been uh, seizures. They uh, start smuggling by land or by sea, which has been the case in, in Peru in recent years. Now it's smuggling drugs to Brazil and to Bolivia and by sea to, to Mexico, whereas before it used to fly coca into Colombia. And, of course, the most uh, common phenomenon in the supply-side campaign has been the so-called push-down pop-up effect, whereby uh, efforts to eradicate drugs in one area that may be successful only lead for it to be popping up in other areas. The late 1980s in the Caribbean is an example of that. Drugs used to flow through the Caribbean mainly to get to the United States. Interdiction efforts there, which were considered successful, mainly resulted in drugs flowing through Central America and Mexico. Today's problems in Mexico are very much a legacy of the interdiction in the Caribbean. Peru and Bolivia in the 1980s and early 90s are another example. They used to be the largest producers of coca in the world until major crackdowns there uh, led uh, to reductions in the production of, of coca, but that was quickly replaced by the tremendous increase in production of coca in Colombia, which went from being a ne- negligible producer of coca to being the largest producer of coca in the world, therefore pretty much maintaining the, the supply that existed before. Uh, one of the consequences of breaking that bridge, of breaking that link between Peru and Colombia in the, in the drug trafficking uh, routes uh, has been to create incentives for Peru <coughs> to get into the cocaine business. It used to just produce coca and coca paste and send it on to Colombia. Uh, since then, it became advantageous to do everything in Peru, including uh, cocaine. With Plan Colombia, more recently, the crackdown there has led to notable increases in the production of coca, again, in uh, Peru and in Bolivia, and more recently, uh, notable increases in the production of cocaine in Peru. This is particularly worrisome because that's where the money is, the production of, of cocaine. The, the cocaine is what, uh, what uh, brings in uh, the money, and, I th- and we'll, I'll talk about that uh, a little bit more in a minute. But these policies are not just ineffective. They're downright uh, harmful. Uh, Prohibition is providing uh, the means by which cartels are gaining astronomical uh, sums and the reason by which they uh, wage war against society, against the state, and against the institutions of civil society, including by corrupting the courts, the legislatures, uh, high officials in, uh, in law enforcement agencies, this has happened again and again in, in Mexico, intimidating the press, and so on. But uh, the drug war has also supported, over the years, uh, 
guerrilla groups, as has been the case in Colombia, where these groups uh, entered directly into the, into the drug trade. The case of the FARC is one example. Or in the case of Peru, where they enter into marriage of convenience, as in the case of the Shining Path, with drug traffickers. Uh, both uh, groups over the years have obtained hundreds of millions of dollars because of the drug war. Professor Robert Barrow some years ago observed that uh, the U.S. could pretty much achieve the, z the same results if it gave this, that aid to uh, the terrorists directly. Eradication has had very negative consequences in the region, too, because it, it has served to marginalize ordinary farmers uh, whose livelihoods are at stake and who then view the state as an enemy and push them into the arms of uh, traffickers and other unsavory elements. Uh, I very much see the rise of populist president Evo Morales in Bolivia as a consequence of the drug war in that country. Uh, years ago, when the United States was pushing for Bolivia to have a harsh crackdown on the growth of, of coca there, uh, Bolivia complied, and it was fairly successful in wiping out entire regions of coca. Evo Morales was a, re a leader of a coca-growing region and became very popular at that time uh, for protesting uh, what was going on there. And uh, I don't think that if it, if it weren't for the drug war, we would be seeing a anti-American, anti-market, I would add anti-freedom uh, leader in Bolivia today. Well, Peru uh, finally did defeat the shining path in, in the early 1990s, and Colombia has had tremendous success in uh, fighting back the FARC at Rebels today. Colombia is a much better place than it used to be even six years ago. It's a livable country in most of the, in most of the country. But it's important to note that both achieved that success by essentially decoupling the drug war from the fight against uh, guerrillas. And the fact of the matter is that uh, the, the, by, by linking the two, they would never have been able to achieve their victories uh, or largely victories against those groups. Uh, the record of the drug war in Latin America over the sev past several decades it, gives us a lot of reason to be worried about developments in Mexico. Uh, the increase in violence there, after all, is directly a result of President Calderón's all-out declaration of war against the, the drug traffickers since he came into office a little bit more than uh, two years ago. Uh, but that war can't be won, and it can't be won for the same reasons uh, that... Uh, that we've seen in the rest of, of the region. And what is happening there is worrisome for the same reasons, including uh, an increased role of the military in a country that never had uh, a prominent role for the military. This is one of the things that made Mexico uh, a special case in Latin America. Uh, it, it really doesn't have a history of military coups uh, since, the in, since the beginning of the 20th century, as has been so common in the rest of Latin America. Uh, at the same time, we're seeing an increased crackdown in Peru because of the increase in drug uh, production, and I think that that uh, is, is worrisome. 
and it is being accompanied by an increase in violence in Peru of the kind never before seen, uh, uh, with very gruesome uh, techniques. And I think that that is also uh, very much um, a result of uh, the fact that cocaine is being produced and that these countries today are much, much more modern societies than they were 20 years ago. They have modernized. They have opened up. You can run a, a complex business, even a multinational, out of these countries. And this makes for a very deadly combination uh, where drug traffickers can actually run uh, an important entrepreneurial multi-billion dollar business uh, successfully. But, it, but you combine that with the successes in, in uh, democratization and uh, economic freedom, and as I say, you get two policies that are working completely at cross uh, purposes. So I think that uh, what we're going to be seeing, and indeed we're already seeing that in Mexico and signs of it in Peru, is uh, this increase in the kind of violence that was characteristic of Colombia in the 1980s and early 90s related to the drug war. Colombia previously being one of the most uh, modern, diverse uh, economies in Latin America. So the drug war is getting worse, not better. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why leaders from Latin America or ex-presidents have recently been coming out and calling for a rethink, even a legalization of drugs. This includes the former presidents of, of Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia. Just this week, President Fox announced that he was in favor of, of legalization and all other alternatives to the current drug war. Uh, None of this is going to ultimately change, however, until the, the United States ends prohibition in, uh, in the U.S. I don't, uh, uh, I'm not under any illusions that that's going to happen tomorrow, but we need to start pushing for that agenda now. In the meantime, uh, at the very least, what we can do is stop prosecuting the futile and destructive war on drugs in the region. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Our next speaker is Ted Galen Carpenter. Ted is the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, he is the author of uh, numerous books and the editor of, uh, of 10 books on international affairs. And, uh, excuse me. His latest is uh, Smart Power, which came out uh, last year. Um, Ted is also a contributing editor to National Interests and serves on the editorial <coughs> boards of Mediterranean Quarterly and the Journal of Strategic Studies. He uh, holds a Ph.D. in U.S. Diplomatic History from the University of Texas. Ted? Thanks very much, Brandon. Um, I have been interested in the uh, international phase of the war on drugs for a very long time. And, in fact, in 2003, I published a book, uh, Bad Neighbor Policy, Washington's Futile War on Drugs in Latin America. One of the chapters in that book was a chapter with the title posing the question, Mexico, the next Colombia? Now, that was a long time ago. And at the time, that seemed like a uh, somewhat speculative uh, question. Uh, it's no longer speculative. Uh, what we're seeing with the war on drugs is that it is creating acute strategic problems for the United States in two major arenas. 
One Ian has already touched on, Mexico. The other is Afghanistan. Ian has indicated that uh, the situation in Mexico is exceedingly bad. And I'd like to uh, elaborate on that a bit because I think people in this country, although they're recently paying a bit more attention to what's going on in Mexico, still do not quite grasp just how bad the situation is. Drug-related violence in Mexico in 2008 claimed approximately 6,000 lives. And uh, 2009 is off to a very ugly start. In fact, uh, the Associated Press uh, just reported yesterday that four American citizens of Mexican descent who had traveled to Tijuana, one of the individuals apparently at least had an acquaintance with a drug trafficker, but it, apparently the connection is no greater than that, and they were found over the weekend bound, strangled, beaten, and stabbed to death. It is getting increasingly risky for Americans to travel in portions of Mexico, particularly in the, in the border region. Indeed, the State Department has issued a series of travel alerts, one of which said that fighting among the uh, leading drug cartels, the Sinaloa and Gulf cartels, and between those cartels and the Mexican uh, military and police, that uh, that has become so bad that the fighting constitutes, and I quote, small unit combat operations involving the use of such weapons as machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades. My friend Sarah Carter from the Washington Times, who has done just tremendous work on uh, drug, the drug trade in Mexico and the uh, power of the cartels, uh, cites a high-level U.S. Pentagon official, who for obvious reasons remains anonymous, and he stated to her that the Pentagon now estimates that the two leading cartels are able to field some 100,000, quote, foot soldiers, unquote. If you add in the other cartels, you're talking about something in the vicinity of 140 to 150,000 armed foot soldiers. The total size of the Mexican army is 188,000. Now, all of this has led to some speculation that Mexico could be in some danger of becoming a failed state. That danger, I believe, is still premature, and Ian cited some of the factors that makes Mexico, uh, I think, a stronger state than most other uh, countries in uh, Latin America. But it is a worst-case scenario that can no longer be ruled out. The cartels are becoming increasingly violent. They are becoming increasingly bold. They are becoming increasingly powerful. How bold have they become? Consider an incident in one of the Mexican border cities, Nuevo Laredo, last year, in which the Zetas, the enforcement arm of the Gulf cartel, advertised for recruits. It advertised by putting up posters and, and hanging a giant banner across one of the leading uh, thoroughfares in the city with the message, the Zetas want you, ex-soldier or ex-policeman, and indicating that benefits are much, much greater than any competing employer could provide. 
The violence in Mexico connected with the drug cartels is now spilling over the border directly into the United States. For example, last year in Phoenix, there were more than 300 kidnapping incidents, and indeed, Phoenix is now accurately described as the kidnapping capital of the United States. The overwhelming majority of those incidents were connected with one or more of the Mexican drug cartels. Typically, an individual was thought to owe money to the cartels and was kidnapped, or increasingly, relatives of individuals that a cartel thought owed the organization money are kidnapped and held for ransom. The cartels are now targeting law enforcement and other personnel in the United States for assassination, indeed are beginning to publish lists of those individuals. The other arena where we're seeing a lot of trouble is Afghanistan. Now, the United States has obviously had an important security interest in that country ever since September 11th. The United States mission in Afghanistan has been at its core to defeat the Taliban and al-Qaeda. But from the very beginning of that mission, there has been a complication, and that is Afghanistan is now the principal supplier of opium, the raw ingredient for heroin, to the world market, particularly in Europe. And it's reached the point that Afghanistan, in fact, now provides about 90% of the world's heroin supply. The U.S. and NATO military leaders concluded early on that they really could not go after the drug trade in Afghanistan without jeopardizing that primary mission. Why was that the case? Because the drug trade accounts for roughly a third of Afghanistan's overall economy. It was absolutely central to what little economic health the country had. Demanding that Afghan authorities wipe out the drug trade or taking direct action to wipe out the drug trade is roughly akin to uh, demanding that the Japanese government wipe out its electronics and automobile industries because the importance of the drug trade to Afghanistan economically is roughly the same as the importance of those two industries in Japan. You get the sense of just how critical that is to the livelihood of the Afghan people the United Nations estimates that 509,000 Afghan families are directly involved in the drug trade, mostly growing drug crops, but there are people involved in other aspects of the trade as well. Now, even measured on a nuclear family basis, that means that something in excess of 12 to 13 percent of Afghanistan's population is directly involved in the drug trade. But anyone who knows uh, anything about Afghan society understands you can't measure things on a nuclear family basis. That is a society built on extended families and clans. And if you measure that, then it is clear that well over a third of Afghanistan's population is involved directly or indirectly in the drug trade. Now, what does that mean operationally? That means if American troops go barging in and decide to burn a field of opium poppies, for Farmer Walid, not only are you going to get Farmer Walid and his family really angry at you and increasingly uh, friendly toward the Taliban and al-Qaeda, 
but you're probably going to find out that uh, Farmer Walid's second cousin once removed and his family are now mad at you and are now cozying up to the Taliban. The military understood this from the beginning. Uh, civilian policymakers in the United States and especially the drug war bureaucracy in the United States for whom every mission has to have uh, the highest priority to eradicating drugs apparently have not understood this point. They have put increasing pressure on the military to make drug eradication a very high priority and the military has grudgingly given way uh, and increasingly is involved in anti-narcotics operations. What has that done? Well, in the southern part of Afghanistan, and particularly in Helmand and Kandahar provinces, which coincidentally happen to be the heart of opium poppy cultivation country, the Taliban have made a huge resurgence and basically dominate major portions of those two provinces. Even to the most obtuse drug warriors in the United States, it should be evident that if we want to win the fight against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, we cannot go barging in to deprive Afghan farmers of their principal livelihood. That is not rocket science. That is basic strategy. And yet we are jeopardizing our primary mission, which, according to President Obama correctly, is to uh, disrupt, degrade, and defeat al-Qaeda. The drug war in Afghanistan is a tremendous distraction, a tremendous complication for the United States and its NATO allies. We face, both in Mexico and in Afghanistan, and for that matter, generally, in the international war on drugs, a basic economic reality. And that is that the drug trade globally is a vast, highly lucrative enterprise. The United Nations estimates that the global drug trade is somewhere between 320 and $340 billion a year. Mexico's share of that, by the way, is estimated at anything between $35 billion and $60 billion a year. The latter figure comes from a DEA representative in the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City, so I would give that a fair degree of credibility. Roughly 90% of that amount is due to the black market premium created by a prohibitionist strategy. If we want to strike a blow at the cartels in Mexico and elsewhere, a huge blow to their revenue flow, we ought to end our prohibitionist policy in the United States. That would strike the greatest blow against drug trafficking criminal organizations that we could ever imagine. One would have thought we would have learned the basic lesson that prohibition doesn't work. It simply drives a trade in a product underground and puts it dominantly in the hands of the most violence-prone criminal elements. That we would have learned that from our own experience in the 1920s and early 1930s with the prohibition of alcohol. 
when we had prohibition, the alcohol trade was dominated by the likes of Dutch Schultz and Al Capone. Today, with a legal system, it is dominated by the likes of Anheuser-Busch, Gallo Wines, and Jack Daniels Distilleries. Now, I don't argue that legalization is a panacea. Obviously, we have a lot of problems associated with alcohol, including alcoholism, drunk driving, family violence, and so on. It's not a panacea. But would anyone seriously argue that we had a better system during the Prohibition era? It's better to have the trade in the hands of honest business people than armed criminals. Our prohibition policy has empowered the drug trafficking organizations, especially in Mexico, to the point that those organizations now pose a threat to the integrity of the Mexican state and are now posing a credible security threat to the United States itself. Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs back in 1971. And I'm gratified to see that uh, Mr. Kirilikowski feels that we ought to abandon that metaphor uh, that I guess is one of the last legacies of Richard Nixon's administration, and we ought to be happy to be rid of it. But we have to do more than just change the label. We have to change our policies. Prohibition has been a disaster domestically and internationally. Domestically, more than 60% of inmates in federal prisons are in there on drug charges. At the state level, better than a third are in prison because of drug charges. Each year, we are jailing more, uh, close to a million people on drug charges. We're expending vast financial resources at a time when we cannot afford it. We've created a tragedy domestically. How many young lives have been ruined because of a criminal conviction for involvement in drugs? Imagine, if you will, a young black man who admitted that in his youth he used illegal drugs. Today he resides in a very large house on Pennsylvania Avenue. If he had been one of the unlucky ones to run afoul of the law enforcement bureaucracy, does anyone think that Barack Obama would be president of the United States today? Not a chance. He wouldn't have even had a law degree from Harvard, much less a political career. We have to adopt a different strategy and adopt a realistic strategy that drug use spans a spectrum from true addiction and drug abuse to casual drug use. There was a big flap, of course, about Michael Phelps smoking marijuana, horror of horrors. Just imagine what the man might have done at Beijing if he hadn't been a pothead. <laughs> I think we have to understand that not all drug use is the end of the world. It is a problem. It is a public health problem. We all need to recognize that. It is not solved by trying to immerse it in the criminal justice system. And it's certainly not solved by trying to beat up on our neighbors and countries around the world to try to solve the problem of drug use. The reality today is that glo global drug consumption, 
is trending up, not down. In fact, the United States is a relatively mature market. The, the amount of consumption has been fairly level over a number of years. The big rates of growth are taking place in Eastern Europe, portions of the former Soviet Union, and portions of Africa and elsewhere in Latin America. So even if the drug warriors in this country got their wish and drug consumption dropped dramatically, which is not likely, but let's assume they did succeed, there is enough global demand to keep the drug trafficking organizations in business indefinitely. We can strike a big blow at them. Full-scale legalization would deprive the Mexican cartels of roughly 90% of their revenues. But even partial legalization, let's start with the least harmful drug, legalized marijuana. The Mexican cartels get about 55% of their revenues from marijuana sales. Now, if you legalize marijuana in this country, who's going to be buying it from the Mexican cartels when you can buy it from local growers in Northern California or elsewhere? Or for that matter, in most cases, you could just grow it in your backyard. You're not going to be involved with the Mexican cartels. Even that limited step would strike a crucial blow against the cartels. The good news is that the fortress of the drug war is beginning to show cracks. Ian described some of the cracks internationally, where foreign leaders are beginning to speak out against this futile strategy. We're seeing it in a number of countries, most notably a place you wouldn't expect, Portugal, which has essentially decriminalized the possession and use of small quantities of all drugs, not just marijuana. And incidentally, the horror stories that the drug warriors always predict, that drug use would just skyrocket if we ever legalized drugs, has not come to pass in Portugal. As a matter of fact, overall drug use rates, and particularly among teenagers, gone down, not up. So, so much for the soaring use argument. We're also seeing the drug war fortress show cracks domestically. We've seen that emerge over the last several years with the passage of medical marijuana laws. We're now seeing with people like California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger calling for a full-scale national debate on drug legalization. And incidentally, a field poll in California taken after his uh, comments indicated that a majority of Californians now favor legalizing and taxing marijuana. The prohibitionist fortress is beginning to crumble. And the only sad thing is that it's about four decades too late. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. Uh, Ted mentioned the case of Portugal. I just wanted to bring to everybody's attention. We just published a study at Cato uh, examining the case of Portugal, and that's available on our website, uh, cato.org. It's an excellent piece of, uh, piece of work there done by Glenn Greenwald.